0: What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Dr. Devin Walker, and I'm here with Javier Wallace, and we are Black with Blue Passports. This podcast explores the impact that international travel has on Black Americans' pursuit of liberty and racial justice. This podcast is sponsored by DDCE Global at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from the World Walker Foundation and Black Austin Tours. All right, welcome back to your favorite podcast, Black with Blue Passports. Uh, We have a very esteemed guest, a colleague, a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Peniel Joseph. We're excited to have you on here. And uh, let me just go ahead and read briefly your bio and then we're gonna jump straight into it. So Dr. Peniel Joseph is the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and Professor of History and the Founding Director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin. He has written several previous books on African-American history, including Stokely, A Life. He lives in Austin, Texas, and his most recent book, The Sword and the Shield, has been added to Time Magazine's must-read books of 2020. So congratulations on all your compliments. Thanks for being here. And uh, how are you doing today?
1: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Devin. Dr. Walker, so it's a pleasure.
2: Cool. Yeah, most definitely. Hey, Dr. Joseph, um, just want to tell you that I, I, I can recall the first time that I heard you speak. I was at the Black Student Athlete Summit in 2017, oh, fresh off the plane from Panama, about to give a presentation. <laughs> and at the luncheon, I, and this gentleman walks up and starts hollering, screaming. I'm like, who is this dude? Who is this dude? And and, But the thing thing that really stuck out to me was when you started to talk about your background, being from New York City, and about your Haitian parents, and you mentioned the Haitian Revolution. And you know, we're talking about on this podcast, international study abroad and like how internationalism can address and readdress racial injustices. And I've always thought about the Haitian Revolution in a very specific way. Coming from Panama, that used to be part of uh, Colombia and Simon Bolivar and the the relationship that Simon Bolivar had with the Haitian populace. And I'm like, this dude knows something. I got to ask him this question. I just want to jump on. Bill, can you tell us about your background, being Haitian, being raised in a Haitian family and particularly like what is the importance of Haiti as we address these issues of blackness and black people on a global level?
1: Yeah, you know, it's great. Thank you for the question, Javier. Um, one, I'm part of the Haitian Roundtable in New York. I've been inducted in the Haitian Roundtable, so being Haitian is very, very important to me. I consider myself Haitian American and African American. Um, Haiti is central. You know, when we're talking about revolution and we're talking about human rights for all people, Latin America, Central America, the Caribbean, all over the world, uh, the Haitian Revolution it, and I love Simone Boulevard is bigger. Is bigger than everybody's, and I'll tell you why. The Haitian Revolution, it takes the words and the ideals of the French Revolution and the American Revolution and all these revolutions, and it makes it actually into a reality, right? So it goes from being a colony of enslaved Africans uh, into a republic of citizens in 1804. So when we think about the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, what happens is that uh, Haitians, And we're thinking about, obviously, Toussaint Louverture and Dessalines and Boukman and Saint-Souci and Mackandal and all these folks who were part of the Haitian Revolution. But what you see is over a 13-year period, they defeat the French, they defeat the Spanish Empire, they defeat the British all together. And they then, as a new country with the War of Independence in 1803, 1804, they defeat the French again. They defeat the French several times. And so what you see, and then they have to pay a huge indemnity to France. Uh, the United States, <clears throat> Haiti is the first country, not Cuba, but Haiti, to suffer an embargo by the United States, no less than Thomas Jefferson, who is humiliated by the fact that the same Black people who he's making a claim are less than human, are some kind of species of property. Not only are they organizing a civil society and writing a constitution. They are eradicating slavery. They're taking over the plantation economy. There's a point where Toussaint takes over all of Saint-Domingue and takes over what we now think of as Dominican Republic. Um, They are are the superior of the Western empires in military warfare. They're their superiors in terms of um, cultural and political literacy. Uh, they're their superiors in terms of uh, morality and integrity and sincerity. So the reason why Haiti becomes a legend, and there's a great new book on the Haitian Revolution, Black Spartacus. Of course, C.L.R. James's uh, uh, The Black Jacobins. But I grew up in a household where we were just talking about Haitian history. My mom, uh, who raised me and my older brother, who's, who's, a, who's a physician, uh, was part of Hospital Workers Union 1199 SCIU. So I grew up on picket lines at an early age, uh, grew up speaking um, Haitian and, and, you know, sac passé, not boulet, not, you know, and, and it's like, you know, this is a big deal. And Frederick Douglass was influenced by Haiti, David Walker. People find out about Toussaint, the Black Spartacus. They find out about Dessalines, Jean Jacques Dessalines, Coupetet, um, Bouillet and he said, in terms of these white supremacists, he's going to cut their heads off, and and they had to do a scorched earth policy. And Toussaint agreed with it um, before Toussaint was was um, betrayed and and uh, uh, kidnapped by the French, really. And so, you know, being Haitian is really really huge and important because what it provides you is something that's deeper than um, civil rights. It really provides you with a context for human rights, and it really provides you with a context of how to think about citizenship and dignity and and you know before Malcolm X, before Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, um, Ella Baker, there's the Haitian Revolution. you know we we would not have had the end of racial slavery in the United States without the Haitian Revolution. We would not have had um, Bolivar without the Haitian Revolution. Haitian revolution proves that it can happen, but it also expands the terrain of citizenship and dignity. Because remember, The French are white supremacists, and they're also liars. So their whole revolution was based on the lie of Black uh, subhumanity. Uh, And the Haitians realized that and actually do the revolution that's based on humanity and not anti-Black racism. And the American Revolution is also a lie because it's a revolution predicated on white supremacy and worshiping at the altar of white supremacy, whether that's Thomas Jefferson or, or Donald Trump. It's worshiping at the, at, the, at the altar of white supremacy. So the American Revolution turned white supremacy into its own religion. So some people call evangelical Christians. They're not any kind of Christians that I understand. They are white supremacists. And what's great about it is that the Haitians, and then Malcolm uh, X did this too, is called those uh, white supremacists who use religion Called them what they were. They said they were morally reprehensible and politically irredeemable. So that's so, that's what's so great about about Haiti, uh, especially in 2020. Because if we're ever going to be free, we have to understand the Haitian Revolution, but we also have to transform Haiti and give Haiti an opportunity. Because Haiti's been paying ever since uh, for for over 200 years, been paying for um, repudiating white supremacy and repudiating Western uh, imperialism and has suffered through uh, invasion and 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 conquest by the Americans and the Americans introducing Jim Crow segregation into Haiti. So they've 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 paid Haitians have paid a big debt and it's not just environmental disasters like the Haitian earthquake. It's really being um, looted by the Clinton administration, being looted by Republican and Democratic administrations where the whites come in and set up NGOs and take the best parts of Haiti, the best beach property, the best, the best resources, and they say they're trying to help the Haitian people who remain mired in poverty, not because of Haiti, but because of the enmity towards Haiti uh, that starts with France and the United States uh, in the late 19th century.
0: Dr. Joseph, you, you talk about the, the importance early, of the Haitian Revolution and in terms of racial justice, not only in Haiti, but in the Americas, and in the world at large, why do you think there, we don't learn about this stuff and what will be the benefit of having more education about the history of Haiti within our school system?
1: We don't learn about it, Devin, because of fear. There's a fear of understanding how Haiti is the revolution that is committed to human rights in a way that the French Revolution and the American Revolution are, are, are not. France, by way of its colonialism, including its subjugation of uh, Africans in the Caribbean, like Haiti, the United States by virtue of racial slavery uh, in the 13 colonies that become the United States. So Haiti becomes the first free black republic in the history of the Western hemisphere because the whole West is predicated on racial capitalism and the super exploitation of black bodies in the Caribbean, in the Americas, in Europe and in, you know, all over the world, you know, Latin America, South America, you know. So Haiti becomes something that is a nightmare for white supremacists. You know, so before you have the Mau Mau and Kenya and African decolonization, you have Haiti. That's the whole thing. So the origin story, and there are rebellions in Jamaica, there were rebellions, but those folks were still conquered. Haiti destroys and kills. Uh, tens of thousands of would-be white supremacists uh, in that 13-year war of attrition. Uh, And and they don't don't think they're going to be able to, that the Haitians are going to be able to be liberated, but they liberate themselves, right? And so no one wants to, um, Western education doesn't want folks to show how uh, this was this indigenous population that liberated themselves through self-defensive violence against racial slavery. So they don't want, and again, they didn't want Frederick Douglass knowing about it, who becomes later ambassador to Haiti. They, they don't want people knowing. But again, Toussaint, Black Spartacus, he, he's this global revolutionary figure. Uh, and so is Dessalines and other heroes of the Haitian Revolution.
0: Okay, So I want to I switch gears a little bit and jump in, a, you know, the focus of your book, The Sword and the Shield, And I wanna talk a little bit about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and both of their international journeys and how their international trips, you can start with whichever one you want or talk about them together. How do you feel like their international experiences influenced them personally, but then also uh, their own politics and their pursuit towards racial justice here in the States and globally?
1: You know, I would say with Malcolm, his internationalism starts even before taking the trip to the Middle East in 1959. He spends five weeks in the Middle East. And then in 1964, he's gonna spend about 24 weeks uh, in Africa, the Middle East. Um, He is influenced by the 1955 Bandung Indonesia Afro-Asian Conference, which brings together leaders of 29 uh, countries who represent over a billion people. Um, And they create the non-aligned movement. That's what we think of as a third world that's not going to be beholden to either US-style capitalism or Soviet-style socialism, right? And so Malcolm is thinking of a broad-based Black united front over time, a third world united front. And so when Malcolm goes to the Middle East, it really transforms him. He had never been anywhere. He's in Cairo. Uh, He's feted by by, um, princes and diplomats. He meets up with Anwar el-Sadat, who's vice president of Egypt, future president of Egypt. Uh, It really changes him. So Malcolm had been interested in African decolonization. And that trip just amplifies that interest. Malcolm meets up with people like Kwame Nkrumah uh, in Harlem. Um, Malcolm meets up with all these different African leaders. He has a office at the United Nations. Um, So he's really thinking about connecting anti-colonialism abroad with anti-racism at home. In 64, he, of course, um, spends five weeks initially in April and May taking the Hajj to Mecca, becomes an Orthodox Muslim, El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. And Malcolm was always a Muslim. He just becomes an Orthodox Muslim. What's interesting about Malcolm is that he's interested in a global Islamic revolution that's both secular uh, and religious. And so when we think about Malcolm X, we should think of him as a man of faith as well. Um, Then from July mm, 11th, 12th uh, till November 21st, he goes to uh, Africa and he he goes to Cairo by way of London. He goes to the Organization of African Unity Conference. He meets up with all these diplomats. He's staying at the ISIS hotel there. Uh, He goes to Liberia, he goes to Tanzania, he goes to Nigeria. He's really all over the place for months and months. And he's organizing his own Afro-American Unity Conference, his own Afro-American Unity um, organization that's patterned after the OAU. And I think what happens with Malcolm, he says at a press conference, travel broadens one's scope. right? So he comes to see that the struggle for Black dignity that he'd always been a part of is truly global in, in scope, making the argument that. Black freedom in the United States is not going to come until Black people are freed in the Caribbean, in the Middle East, in Africa, in South America, in Latin America, the whole deal, right? So that's what happens with Malcolm. And Malcolm, in a lot of ways, tries to forge ties in the global community in a bigger way than Dr. King, uh, but forge ties with revolutionaries. And so by the end of his life, Malcolm is trying to... um, Um, go to the United Nations and charge the United States with human rights violations, something that Black radicals had tried in the 1950s, William Patterson and others. We charge genocide was the pamphlet. Um, King is also very much influenced by the global, um, but King has more mainstream access than Malcolm in a way, right? He goes to Ghana during the celebrations of the former British Gold Coast becoming Ghana. Uh, He meets up with Vice President Richard Nixon, who's a racial moderate at the time, believe it or not. Um, He spends a month in India in 1959. So King is in Ghana in 57. He's in um, India in 1959. India is important because King meets up with Prime Minister Jawaharlal uh, Nehru, who is Gandhi's right hand and who becomes minister. Um, And, you know... When we think about India, there's so much poverty there. He meets up with the untouchables and the caste system. King starts to connect in even deeper ways racial justice, nonviolence, and the eradication of poverty and violence, and seeing the structural violence inherent in poverty. Like So that's, that's a, it's a big deal, right? Now, throughout the rest of the 60s, you see King sort of traveling globally less except with an exception in 1964 when he goes to the UK and then Oslo to accept the Nobel Peace Prize. But him winning the Nobel means that he's this global figure, right? So King becomes this, this uh, in one way, to think about King and Malcolm, King is almost like uh, the biggest brand there is on racial Justice, and Malcolm is a smaller but very, very potent brand, right? You know, so, and that's why King is the person who deals with the White House and the presidents and all that. I think over time, King's internationalism becomes convergent with Malcolm's internationalism. And this is where I argue that Dr. King is the defense attorney, Malcolm X is the prosecuting attorney. So Malcolm X is prosecuting white folks and white America for a series of crimes. And the global aspect of the crimes are what? Racial slavery. Because as you know, racial slavery is a global enterprise. The United States would not be the United States of America without racial slavery having built the railroads and the colleges and provided credit in the form of human bodies, right, for speculation and wealth creation, right? That's all we did. That's all, in quotes, we did for the country and the world, right? Um, and, and it's not just cotton, it's everything. It's the rice cultivation it's the fashion, it's the music. We built everything, right? And so Malcolm prosecutes that case. Malcolm's not interested in talking to white folks about black humanity. He takes black humanity as a given. In contrast, King is defending black humanity to white folks and he's defending white souls to black folks, you know? So sometimes we talk about Du Bois and the souls of black folks. What I mean by white souls is saying that, he's saying that this, this vicious system Um, um, doesn't mean that these folks are inherently evil, right? Which pushes back against Malcolm, too, because Nation of Islam is saying, look, a Black scientist named Yaku created white folks. So Nation of Islam has their own origin story about white folks. So it's anti-racism that can traffic in racism in terms of the stereotyping of white people, right? And so when we think about King, though, the international becomes very clear for him following Malcolm X with the Vietnam War. So, the per, one of the most exciting parts about writing the book, Devin, was chapters nine and 10 when I get to the radical king and the revolutionary king, because that's where I get, that's who, who was always denied to me as a student of history and, and just as a young person. I never knew that king, and I wanted to share that king and the revolutionary Malcolm together. How Malcolm was going for Black dignity, which was really a global project of ending what he called worldwide supremacy. King was going for black citizenship, which was a project of really not just voting rights, but eradicating racial oppression and having health care and decent housing and ending segregation and having access for all people. And over time, they come to see you need the radical black dignity and citizenship. So the world changed them, but I would say that Malcolm is impacted initially bigger by global events. He comes out against the Vietnam War in 64 before King, right? But by the time King comes out against the Vietnam War in 1967, April 4th at the Riverside speech, he really announces himself as this global revolutionary figure. And one thing we should never forget is that when King says the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, he's not just talking about physical violence, he's also talking about structural violence, right? And so King becomes this man on fire, this very, very prophetic figure, but he says he's against militarism, materialism, and racism, and those things still impact all of us today. So the global is very, very important to both of them.
0: Wow. Um, so, and w- where do you think now, kind of comparing our history, because I'm, I'm reading this Ida B. Wells book, right? And about her tours.
1: Is it is it Paula Giddings or is it... Um, um, it is the autobiography. Okay,
0: right, and so she's talking about her tours and her anti-lynching campaign through England. And then I think about some of the historical figures, Martin, Malcolm X, you just mentioned, um, and other folks we haven't really explored, Paul Robeson, right, and his international. Oh yeah. What what, yeah. what has the international space meant for Black dignity and racial justice here in America?
1: In a lot of ways, it's meant an opportunity to cultivate a different conception of oneself. You know, um, so you're thinking about black women who went overseas, Keisha Blaine talks about them and set the world on fire, but Eric McDuffie as well and sojourning for truth, sojourning for justice. Um, Dale Gore looks at black feminists at the crossroads who are internationalist as well. Um, you know, Du Bois went overseas. Um, so Frederick Douglass, it's really imagining yourself as a global citizen against America's racial empire, its racist empire, right? Um, forging different alliances. Malcolm X meets up with Fidel Castro in September of 1960 at the Teresa Hotel in Harlem. And that's very, very important. Uh, they're converging anti-colonialism with anti-racism. Uh, it's complex because whenever, wherever Black people go, indigenously, there's gonna be people of color and Black people are being oppressed there too. So sometimes you can go overseas and you're Richard Wright, you're Langston Hughes, you go overseas and you're thinking, Zora Neale Hurston, whoever, that this place is really rolling out the red carpet for me, but you gotta check and see how are the indigenous folks here doing? So right now, me and you can go to France as Americans, you know, post COVID, but how are African immigrants and Haitian immigrants and and immigrants from Panama treated in France and Italy and just all over the world they're treated very badly let me tell you they're treated very very badly and it's like Malcolm X said after he came back from one of his trips overseas in 64 he said no matter how uh, much white folks are saying they like me they're giving me dignity uh, unless that is extended and until it's extended to every single last black person it doesn't mean anything for me right and so that that's that's the 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 call and the response of, of the global and that's why Haiti is so important because Haitian Revolution is the first uh revolution that eradicates racial slavery, you know, eradicates racial slavery. And that's really, really uh important because racial slavery is at the root of uh our contemporary problems around the world.
2: Yeah, so I, I actually gotta I gotta follow up with that. Um, you hit the nail on the head because you know I often in I often times say those same things, Um, especially when people talk about it, you know, I'm escaping racism in the United States. I'm going somewhere. I lived in Panama for a while. And, you know, I I, I tell people that, Black people that specifically from the United States, like when you come here, you probably won't experience a certain form of racism that you are experiencing in the United States because you're not local. Yeah, You're not going to be profiled on an everyday basis. You're not going to be subjected to live in subpar deplorable housing as Black Panamanians do. often caution people when using that language. You know, when you're when, talking historic, historically, I know you're a student of history, it makes me think of particularly James Baldwin because I think we all, a lot of people invoke James Baldwin um, when thinking about Black people being abroad. Um, and I'm very drawn to James Baldwin's time that he spent in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, the, the comments that he was making about why he didn't want necessarily to be in the UK and how he was forcing many people in the UK to respond to how they have treated their Black popu- their black Englishmen, that he's saying that your Deep South is the Caribbean. Yeah. You know, and and w- responding in those ways. So, you know, I don't even know if this is a question anymore, uh, more than a comment, but I, I wow. I don't even know if it's a question. I, I really wanted to say that because I think it's super, it's super important to to speak back. And, oh, and I know what the question is now. In in that, how have other Black people from around the globe spoken back or been in conversation with these African American notable figures like C.L.R. James, who who had a position in the United States, like Eric Williams, who taught at Howard, you know, and and these different figures who aren't African American, if you will, but have been in conversation. So, how do we bring them into the conversation when thinking about a global idea of blackness and a global fight of racial injustice, and even Marcus Garvey and people like and other people like these?
1: Yeah, you know, I would say you know you're you're on the right track when you think about Marcus Garvey and Universal Negro Improvement Association. When you think about the um, Pan African conferences, the five between 1900 and 1945, before the Six Pack. Uh, in Tanzania in 1974, Um, in a number of different ways. Howard University is the Black Mecca and different African and Caribbean students uh, from Jamaica, from Trinidad. Sokali Carmichael is one uh, who go to Howard University. Um, Pan-African skills projects, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee going to uh, uh, Guinea, but also having folks from West Africa and Um, The Caribbean um, and Central America and Latin America and other places come to college campuses, come and impact organizations and organizing. Uh, Stokely goes to Puerto Rico in addition to his trips to Africa. So I I do think that the international has often um, spoken back. And when you think about the decolonization movements of Azikiwe and Nkrumah, um, like you said, Nkrumah, you know, Nkrumah, was, was you know going to Lincoln University. Uh, we have a whole group of African intellectuals who are uh, schooled by uh, uh, American universities. But they come at times when people like obviously CLR James, who knew Nkrumah as well, too, are still in the United States. James is deported in 1953 and then comes back to teach at um, Federal City College University of DC in 1968. Uh, And, you know, in between, you know, he's meeting Stokely Carmichael, he's meeting all these different people, uh, Richard Wright the same way. So, um, yes, they've absolutely spoken, um, spoken back.
0: So I want to, as I'm listening to you all speak, um, and I know Javier, you often do talk about this, but to me it was that it is getting at this idea of the negotiation that Black Americans have of, yes, we face this racialized oppression here. But then when we go abroad, like, for example, you talk about when they go to Panama, they don't experience the same type of racism Mm -hmm. that a black Panamanian is going to experience due to the privilege of being American. Yeah. Right. So what how do we how do we better understand the world and and understand like global black oppression, but at the same time, become more aware of our privileges in terms of creating a, a more holistic view of uh racial progress, a more global view of racial progress and not just American racial progress.
1: Well, it's interesting, I wrote a piece for CNN a couple of years ago exactly on that after France and Mbappe won the World Cup, right? And it was like mm-hmm. one of CNN's most most, you know, viewed pieces of the year in the roundup. And what I made the argument was, well, we have to focus on, I said it was a win for immigrants everywhere. We have to focus on Black um immigration and black undocumented and black indigeneity globally right and i think one group that does this is a movement for black lives uh blm because when you think about the policy agenda they look at undocumented folks globally spanish speakers like like you know panam but afro like you know javier afro panamanian afro latinx right um not you know we're down with mexico too but there's a there's a whole African black contingent to undocumented and immigration, right? But one of the things I argued in that piece was that we have to focus on black migration and immigration, but we have to make an argument concertedly, those of us who are anti-racist into intersectional justice, that all people have a a global human rights uh, uh, that that are, not privileges that are mandated from birth, right? And so from that perspective, what you're fighting for, if you're thinking about Biden-Harris, it can't just be like, okay, you want voting rights, you want all this cool stuff for the folks who are citizens, right? You have to say that we we need a pathway to citizenship for 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 our community, our brothers and sisters, but then you have to extend it and say globally, folks who are from Panama and Mauritius and Haiti and Afro-Cubanos uh, have to have these, these global rights, human rights that are recognized. So I think once you do that, if you focus on black immigration and black migrant communities, both in Africa, outside of Africa, both in Latin America, outside of Latin America, both in South America, you think about Brazil as the place where more Enslaved Africans were shipped to than anywhere else on the face of the earth. And so you're thinking about Central America, you're thinking about uh, uh, Nicaragua, you're thinking about Panama, uh, you know, you're thinking about Grenada and Guyana, uh, the whole works. So if you focus on that, then you have a much wider common denominator for the human rights that you're looking for. All right. Well,
0: uh, you know, I'll, I'll let Javier say a few words as well. I know we gotta close this down, but man, just thank you for being here. Um, I'm always amazed as as Javier started off, you know, I was at that same conversation. That was the first time I ever heard you spoke. And I remember I saw you by the stairwell and I came up after and you were talking to somebody, but I had to show my deference. I, I just bowed at you. I didn't know what else to do. I'm like, man, let me just bow with this brother. Like you killed it. And again, man, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at the way you just rattle off facts and stats and, and you know, your approach towards racial justice is, is global in every way that you talk. And so so thank you for being here with us.
1: No, thank you, Devin. You're an inspiration. So you're one of the brilliant Generation Next. You've got it. And so we're just following. What's good about getting older is that you got to follow the lead of the next generation. And it's good. That's your, You can do leadership by serving. And I think a lot of folks don't understand that you do. You're and, and as a as a brother too, as a male cisgender, uh, the type type of post post-patriarch, patriarchal post patriarchal masculinity we're looking for, where we're not just trying to dominate the sisters <laughs> and trying to get in front of the mic. You know, uh, yeah, we're we're doing we're doing something else where we 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 lead by serving. You know and that's what mentors uh do uh, at their best you know so you're 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 brilliant so it's really a pleasure
2: oh, thank you and javier much obliged yeah amazing 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 thank you thank you thank you thank you appreciate it and I, I reserve my comments next time I talk to you oh no thank There's you you know it's great things to say, but appreciate you coming out yeah it's it's
1: great that both of you are focusing on the global and I love black and the blue passports but again that's the key the key to our liberation is like what you talked about with Panama, is if you focus on Black indigeneity, you focus on Black migrants, you focus on women in those communities, because women are the heads of households and reproduce everything. That's the key.
0: That's it. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Black with Blue Passport, and we'll see you next
2: time. Thank y'all for checking out another episode of Black with Blue Passwords with Javier Wallace and Dr. Devin Walker. Make sure y'all follow us and check us out on social media at DDCE Global, World Walker Foundation, Black Austin Tours, Afro-Latino Travel, and keep this conversation going. A special shout-out goes out to our production team, Sophia Leal and Sydney Cox. Hey, be safe, y'all, and we'll see y'all next time.